Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 149. On today's show, we talk about ancient textiles and textile production. Let's dig a little deeper. Welcome to the show, everyone. Rachel, how's it going? Pretty good. We are still in North Carolina, for those that care for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we are always traveling, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so. It's a uh, themed episode, right? It is a themed episode. This episode is going to be all about textiles in the news. Freaking knitters. I know. (laughs) Well, it's not all (laughs) knitting. Actually, most of this is not knitting at all. This is weaving because the oldest textiles are all woven textiles. I mean, isn't weaving just like knitting with a machine? It's kind of oh, no, like still putting all. stuff together. and Oh, no, not I at mean, all. Knitting's loops, I get it. Yeah. Knitting is loops and it's very stretchy. And weaving is like, you're like, you know, when you were a kid and you would like have like a whole line of lines of yarn and then you'd lift them up and then interlock when going the other direction. No, I did never you never do like kid. crafts like that? Who had a loom as a kid? Seriously. <laughs> I don't know. It's a pretty common like 80s kid craft to do, I think. You were either in a fancy school or no. you were a kid in the 1600s. No, okay. <laughs> One of those two things happened. Anyway, <laughs> no, weaving is like interlocking threads or yarns woven together. So they're very, very different techniques. But the reason that we decided to do this themed episode is because there was a couple articles that came out in the last couple months about textiles, and we just thought it would be fun to kind of group them all in together. So segment one is about an article from Peru, and the title is Peru, Skeletal Remains of 25 People Found at Chan Chan Archaeological Site. And it's Chan Chan, not Chan Chan? I, I, okay, so I have been there. So that was the other reason why we decided to... Well, I decided to talk about this article. It's <laughs> because this is a place that I've been. And I remember it being pronounced Chan Chan. Okay. So Chan Chan is in Peru. It's right near the town of Trujillo in Trujillo province. Of course, Trujillo is the biggest town on the north coast of Peru, basically. Okay. Very, very close to the ocean. This site is really interesting for a lot of different reasons. And then this burial area that they found is also super interesting because it's very unusual and it's just got a, an unusual grouping of people mm-hmm. in it. It's located on a raised area of the Utsan, the Great Chimu walled complex. And that is part of the like main city complex of Tauntaun. Yeah, we'll talk about the Chimu Empire a little bit after we talk about the article. Yeah. Yeah, so, give us some context. Because like, honestly, this article doesn't really have a whole lot of substance to it yet because this was just discovered. Yeah. They just found these burials. They don't really know what's going on. But there were 
25 burials. Most of them are women under 30, and they were buried with objects related to textile activities, whatever <laughs> that might mean. There's also a couple children and a couple teenagers. So this is kind of an unusual composition for like a burial area. Mm-hmm. And to be buried specifically with the, the things you need to make textiles is really interesting. Yeah. They also found about 70 vessels and objects used in textile work. So they don't really know what's going on here and they need to do a lot more research to figure out if all these burials were buried at the same time. Are they from one single incident where everybody died together for some crazy or reason? Or were killed together. Or were killed together. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why they could all be buried together like this. And I think a lot more research needs to be done to figure out why. But the interesting and cool thing is that they all have the textile connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting too. Anytime you hear about burials where people are buried with something, especially a specialized object, it's, I don't know, it, it's hard to imagine how important and significant that was because my brain immediately thinks, well, you know, it was really hard to make stuff back then because they didn't have Amazon and you couldn't just like get a new one. <laughs> right. You had to actually make it or, or trade for it or buy it. I mean, obviously they had an economy, but those kinds of things weren't all that hard. So to me, it, it makes it sound like it's a really special object, not just because it's something you used every day, but because it's something that was that was hard to come by mm-hmm. because it, it took some effort to make it. But then I'm like, when you just live in that world where everything is hard to come by and you have to work to do everything, is it really work or is it just like, yeah, I know it's going to take me a week to get another one of these, but that's cool. Right. You know? And like speaking of living in a time where everything is hard. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Chanchan and what and where it was a little bit. It's the capital of the Chimu Empire, which or was what? Yeah, it was the capital of the Chimu Empire, and it was the capital from like 900 to around 1470. And that 1470 date is so specific because they were defeated by the Inca in the 1470 and incorporated into the Inca Empire. And we know for sure because of writings from the time of the Spanish you know, conquistadors, they came another, what, 50 or 80 years later or something like that. So they have pretty solid knowledge on when this happened. Yeah. Isn't it uh, crazy? Like when, anytime we talk about Europe, the Romans come up, but I feel like if you talk about Peru, like the Inca come up, it's the Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Spanish. Yeah. And then the Spanish. (laughs) But they, before the Spanish even got there, there were plenty of empires doing conquering. Yeah. Well, Inca like were particularly known for conquering. Like they were very similar to Romans in the way that they would absorb a group that they, that they conquered into their society. And Mm -hmm. what they did with the Chimu, which was really interesting is that they took all the artisans because that's what Chimu was kind of known for was their beautiful artwork. And they sent them all to, I think to Machu Picchu, which was the capital at that point, mm-hmm. or maybe Cusco. But they, they got sent to where the Incan capital and the Incan rich people were so they could get absorbed into those groups and start, you know, peddling their wares to the rich Incans, <laughs> yeah. basically. Yeah. And the cool thing is this city wasn't like super small. I mean, probably small by today's standards, uh-huh. but... As a coastal city, maybe not. I mean, they had forty to 60,000 people, and it took up an area of about nine square miles. Yeah. So that's pretty dense, actually. It's huge. And most yeah. of it is still there. And like you can, not all of it is open to the public, but like when you're driving down the road in between, Juan Chaco is the name of the city that I stayed at when mm-hmm. I was working in Peru, and Trujillo. So there's like this coastal highway that kind of like connects between the two. And you're just like driving next to ruins for part yeah. of that road. It's it's totally crazy. So yeah. a lot of it is still there. But the 
really different part about the city is that it's made up almost entirely of adobe structures Mm -hmm. rather than stone, which is what you normally think of when you think of South American ancient cities. But it's adobe, and it is the largest adobe city in the Americas. Nice. Nice. It's located in a desert, and this is where I was saying about the hard, hard places to live. It's located in a desert, and at the time that it was thriving, there was a huge lack of water in the area. And this is partly due to crust movement. Over time, the water table was just like lowering on this people, on mm-hmm. these people. Like it was just getting lower and lower every year. The people didn't understand what the heck was going on, but they just kept pivoting to try and accommodate the lowering table level. They developed a super sophisticated canal system to divert water from the nearby Chicama River. Um, That only really worked until around 1300, and then the water table just got too low, and the river was not producing enough water, and they just abandoned it completely, the whole canal system. And then because they had to abandon the canal system, they also basically abandoned agriculture in general, like on Mm -hmm. a large scale. And they started relying on resources from the sea almost exclusively. Yeah. there's a lot of stuff going on, like weather-wise, in this part of the world. That you have some, El, you have El Nino and La Nina weather events that would come in every so often, and they were, they were starting to get worse in that time period too. So, like, there's just a lot of things that are starting to build and be problems for these people. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why they were weak enough in the 1400s for the Incas to be able to defeat them. Who knows? Yeah, and it's crazy. With you know, we we always say, and in fact. Part of the Archaeology Podcast Network is learning about the past, and you know sometimes we say in order to, you know, dictate our future, you you study the past and you learn mm-hmm. from the mistakes of the past. But the reality is, we just don't do that. So, or, or we use advanced technology to overcome problems in the past, like. Mm-hmm. You know, by 1300, they were already having problems with their water table. Yeah. And then they were conquered by the Inca. And the Inca are like, you know, whatever. We got the sea and we'll do that. <laughs> and then later on, they were conquered or, well, mostly by Pizarro uh, in this area. Yeah. And Pizarro, uh, I can't remember, it was probably late 1500s, uh, uh, something like that. 1530-ish, I think. Yeah, somewhere yeah. around there. Yeah. And I don't know if he established Trujillo, but he established the city that became Trujillo there, oh. and which pushed out uh, Chan Chan, basically. Yeah, anybody as a who use. was still living in, yeah. in Chan Chan at that Chan-chan. point. Chan Chan, sorry, yeah. Chan Chan, Chan Chan, Chan yeah, Whatever, say yeah. however you want to so, <laughs> Anyway, it, it fell into you know disuse a little bit as the new city kind of took over and, yeah. and, just, and just got bigger. But now there's like a huge city there. Yeah, and, Trujillo is huge. And they still more than likely have water problems, but they've just found ways to get water mm-hmm. deeper or, or, or truck it in, you know, through the canals or do something. So, yep. But crazy. Yeah. Well, the when the city was thriving, most of the residents of, of the city were super wealthy. I think there were a lot of like small villages and stuff outside of the city yeah. that had like your sort of everyday working people. And then the city itself, it was super wealthy, privileged elite. And that included the craftsmen and priests and people of those classes. Mm-hmm. So getting back to our, our burial story here, it might seem weird to think of a bunch of weavers yeah. <laughs> being buried in like this really important and special complex. But from what we know about the Chimu people and, and Chan Chan, the city, it, it seems like the people there really valued their craftsmen and they were an upper class group of people. Mm-hmm. Now how they all got buried there together. They're all of roughly the same age. Like, who knows? Yeah. That's <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Those there. are more questions that we may not ever be able to answer. Anyway, just a couple more things about Chanchan itself. It's a really, really cool site to see. And as 
I said I've seen it in person and it's just so neat to see the Adobe features and structures all around it. Mm -hmm. They have these beautiful carvings of all these different animals and figures, a lot of marine figures, because clearly by the end they were relying on the sea to provide most of their resources. And it's just a really, really cool, cool area to see. However, like I mentioned, the El Nino factor is really like, like taking a toll on the city. Yeah. So, you know, a thousand years ago when water was their problem, they didn't have enough of it. Well, now water is a big problem. And ironically, it's because there's too much of it. It's because (laughs) it's raining too much. So the rain are caused by the more frequent El Nino events. And I mean, as anybody who works with Adobe structures knows, rain is kind of like the the killer of it. It it melts them away over time. So... The adobe structures were great when this was a desert and it had almost no water. That was the perfect medium for a structure. But now, a thousand years later, there's too much rain and it's just like melting away these structures. So what you're saying is before California was invented and hipsters and hippies, <laughs> that they invented biodegradable, sustainable structures well yeah. before anybody ever thought about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, totally. They're being reclaimed by the earth they now. They are. They're totally being <laughs> reclaimed. It's nice. so It's so sad, though. And there's some talk about like putting structures up over the top of everything to preserve Mm -hmm. it but like i think a lot of it is just like your basic everyday walls and it's like is there a point in preserving just a wall maybe the really pretty stuff with the decoration and the carvings but i don't know and it's nine square miles too i mean it's huge so that just i'm not really sure how they're gonna preserve that doesn't seem like it's really possible Mm -hmm. so all right well next we're gonna talk about turkey but not white meat and dark meat. <laughs> We're going to talk about the always hard to pronounce Chatohoyak in <laughs> Turkey. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to episode 149 of the Archaeology Show. And... Again, we're talking about Çatalhöyük in Turkey, and that is how you pronounce it. It's got a whole bunch of, it's got a weird C with a dangly bit on it, and some other things, and it's just all crazy. But it's another language, so I mean, it's not wrong. But anyway, yeah. 
All right. So as many as this is a little hard to wrap your head around, as many as 10,000 people lived in Chattahoyuk around eight to 9,000 years ago. So many people for it's so long for ago. For 8,000 people, yeah. 8,000 years ago. That's crazy. It's so many people. Yeah. I mean, we always are like, you know, ah, savages in the prehistoric. They didn't know anything, but they mm-hmm. had like legit cities and were doing things. Yeah. You know, eight to even eight to 10,000 years ago in that area. Yeah. Like in a city that big, people. There are probably people that you didn't know. You know what I mean? Like you think of these old villages as like everybody was related. Everybody had a relationship. Everybody knew everybody. It was like you're all up in your business kind of a relationship. But not in a city like this. Not yeah. Not with that many people. Well, it's been excavated over the years quite a few times actually. Uh, lots of excavations. Lots of activity there. Mm-hmm. I in fact know a few people that have actually worked there. Spent a lot of time there. There's just ongoing field seasons for many decades at Chetelhoyuk. So during a 1962 excavation, some pieces of cloth were found, and the material, or the type of material it is, has been debated. So they they couldn't tell in the 60s exactly what that was. Right. Yeah, I mean, they made assumptions like you normally do, because like, you know, old cloth, people just take guesses that it's either wool or linen, right? Mm -hmm. That's just what they were guessing. But there was no like actual scientific evidence of what it was. Yeah. I mean, one thing that does tell you, though, is that there was, you know, definitely weaving and things going on eight to 9,000 years ago. They for sure knew that. Yeah, Yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. So there's a little bit of drama around this excavation, too. Originally, this excavation or period of excavation started in the 50s by James Mellart and... Turkish authorities later expelled him from the country <laughs> because he was allegedly involved in the black market sale of archaeological artifacts. Real stand-up dude there. Yeah. Doing, doing, making a good name for archaeologists. I'm guessing his <laughs> prime customer was the British Museum, but you didn't hear that from me. Oh my God. So, you know. I feel like you're like a little bit mad at the British Museum. I mean, everybody's you, a little mad at the British Museum. <laughs> but you like have a lot of comments to make about like them no. stealing artifacts. They didn't really steal them. It was the time, right? People would give them, sell them. They didn't care they, about provenance at all. They really didn't. Yeah. The same people that ran the museum were the same types of people in the same era that just like didn't yeah. didn't see the people who whose artifacts they were taking as like real people. Yeah. Like they didn't yeah. matter in this decision because they didn't right. find it. So therefore they didn't matter. I mean, the fine people at the British Museum now obviously don't feel that way, but right. they're stuck with this legacy. Yeah. And they're dealing with it. So yeah, yeah, for sure. We should get somebody on from the British Museum to talk about that. We should. Yeah. yeah. If you're listening, contact us. Chris <laughs> yeah, totally. at Podcast Network.com. If you want to send us hate mail, Tristan at Podcast Network. <laughs> Dot com. Or you can send a tweet to the Life and Ruins podcast. Oh, my right. God. Wow. I know. Deflection. <laughs> deflecting to everybody right yeah. now. So Ian Hodder is somebody that if you're an archaeologist and you went to school, you know who Ian Hodder is. Yeah. He's a very famous uh, archaeologist, wrote a lot of books, had mm-hmm. a lot of theories. And uh, he began excavations at Chattahoyuk uh, with his team in 1993 when he worked for Stanford University. And that ran all the way until 2017. Yeah, I'm not sure if he was totally involved for that entire time, Probably but not. there was definitely like yeah. excavations that were begun by him that went all the way until that time period. And some of the later excavations turned up more cloth. And this time being in the 2000s and having better technology and 
really more interest in textile to begin with. I mm-hmm. think in the 60s when it was first discovered, there just like wasn't a whole lot of interest in what the fiber was, how they were making it. It was more just like check in the box. Great. They had textile. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now there are people that are interested in figuring out exactly what what that stuff was. And when they found more cloth, textile expert Bender Jorgensen was invited to study the the pieces of the cloth and figure out what this material is. Like his name was legit Bender? Her name was, yes. Oh, her name is Bender. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if a Bender was a him or a he. So. <laughs> yeah. But I said he because Bender, obviously, from Futurama. From Futurama, I know. <laughs> when I was like, reading her name, I was like, that's a cool name. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty neat. Anyway, well, the Bender is kind of a jerk, so maybe it's not a cool name. Yeah, it's a cool name, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, so people for the last 50 years, like I said earlier, had just kind of assumed that this fiber was wool or linen, and nobody really thought about more about what it could be. They overlooked other options. They just weren't really that interested. So Bender Jorgensen consulted with an archaeobotanist, and they together tested the fibers to try and figure out what they what they are and it was found to be bast fiber from oak willow or linden trees what is bast yeah so bast is is the name for that like fibrous substance that's found between the bark on the outside of a tree and the woody inside part when you pull bark off and you see that like spiderwebby fiber yeah that stuff yeah and it's very very different it's in all like trees and woody species right Mm -hmm. but it's very very different depending on what what species you're talking about and actually technically linen hemp and jute which are all other common early fibers are also from the best family mm-hmm. same same idea it's that pulling that bark away and getting to that fibrous inside bit but so oak willow and linden trees are all natural to the chatelhuyuk area so that just shows that people are using the resources that they have nearby and they figure out how to use them in a way to make the things that they need to make without trying to trade or import from elsewhere. And people always want to talk about trade and what cool trade things past cultures were doing because that is always interesting too is to see who they're trading with and where it was coming from. But I also think it's like really interesting to see how they just take a look at their own landscape and figure out how to use the materials that they have present right there and usable i just wonder how that idea even develops right like you haven't you have to have a knowledge i think of well spinning and and weaving in order to even think where could i get other fibers because my normal source or maybe i'm looking for something different right now but what i was using before is either not available or i'm looking for something stronger like maybe these textiles were used as uh my my image in my head is like a burlap sack or something like that it was pretty rough a lot it was yeah yeah Yeah. so it's like but what what are you doing that you're thinking you need something like that and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, this might work. It's just crazy to me that yeah, they think that. it is crazy. And it seems to have been independently developed around the world, which we'll, we'll actually talk about that a little bit more in segment three. But the fact that they figured out that they could use this fiber as something to weave into cloth mm-hmm. is just a really interesting development that happened multiple times around the world. And we know that this particular type of bast was used for thousands of years for for rope, too. So, like, that kind of information we already had. But rope is so rough that people just didn't consider it. Scientists and archaeologists didn't really consider it as an option for clothing because the material that you use to make rope is usually very different from the material that you use to make clothing, Mm -hmm. you know? But... 
it turns out that with this type of bast, you could you could rip those fibrous inside bits out of the tree and then all you have to do is separate those fibers and they're basically ready to start weaving with because they're very long and very thin and you can separate them into groups of the fibers or you can even separate them all the way down to the individual pieces and that's how you would get the finer and softer material and that material you can make it even softer by processing it with water too. Just like mm-hmm. just washing it basically would make it softer. Yeah. And that's true of linen fiber today. If anybody has ever bought like linen sheets or a linen shirt, the more times you wash it, the softer it gets. It's just how that kind of fiber, bast fiber reacts to water and washing. It just gets softer with time. Nice. So there's one bit of corroborating evidence for why we know that these, that this, Material the fa- the cloth that they found is made from a different kind of bast from the oak trees. And that is because there is zero archaeological evidence for flax seeds anywhere in mm. the valley where Chatelhuyuk is located. So you have to have flax seeds in order to grow the flax plant so that you can process the fibers out of it that become linen. You mm-hmm. have to have that. So there is no flax seeds anywhere, which means that they did not grow grow linen they were just looking at their their natural environment and their natural resources and taking advantage of what they had there which i just love that so cool i'm gonna go peel some bark off outside and see what i find (laughs) yeah you do that we'll see how this rv park takes to that i know right (laughs) all right well we are gonna take a break and when we come back we're gonna little learn a little bit more about this technology and uh bast and and making things like that because I don't even know how to talk about this anyway, <laughs> because I know so little about this. So, back in a minute. <laughs> you may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to segment three of episode 149 of the Archaeology Show. And in this segment, we are going to 
kind of go even deeper into mm-hmm. <laughs> into bast and fibers and sounds fun. What you used to weave. I know you are so like not interested in this. You are one of those archaeologists from the sixties who doesn't care about what fiber is used to make cloth. I would legit sell this at this RV park. <laughs> I'm kidding, obviously. No, I'm interested from a technology standpoint. Yeah. It fascinates me the the things people came up with just to yeah. survive and clothe themselves and do things. And it was really born out of a lot of necessity. It did. It was. You know? Yeah. For and, sure. and then when we ended up with city states and and royal elite, then people were you know essentially commanded to to come up with you know fancier and fancier things, and that kind yeah. of thing drives innovation. It did. It totally drove innovation, and I just love seeing it from a from a crafter perspective and a a maker perspective. One of the things I love about making things myself with my own hands is that you do feel like this connection both to people in the past and how they made things, but also to like the natural landscape too. I'm not even joking about going and pulling bark off of a tree and seeing if I can find some some bass to to weave into something. I'll try it just to see how it works and what it looks like. It's Maybe we just go do that at like your sister's house or something. We, yeah, not, I mean, not like here. We're not going to do it like right here, but I am intrigued by <laughs> figuring out that, that process. And there's some fibers that are way easier to do it with. Like bamboo is so much easier to pull those fibrous bits out of. So mm-hmm. anyway. Anyway, but this third article is called Unraveling the Secrets of Bronze Age Thread. Textile reveals highly advanced and complex process used 3,800 years ago. And this is talking about bast again, because again, it's this huge category that includes linen and flax jute, um, all those different like plant based fibers. And the question is like, you take this fibrous bit between the bark and the wood, and how in the heck do you turn that into something, into fiber that can be woven or twisted into rope? And I, I feel like we almost need to define rope, although there is no solid definition of rope, because what takes something from being just like a twisted fiber, mm-hmm. like yarn mm-hmm. or something, or a thread, in turn, and calling it rope? Like it's not a certain size. We have really yeah. small rope. We have big rope. Yeah, you know, rope seems to be twisted together. Smaller ropes mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, but that's just twisted together smaller fibers. Yeah. So, well, so the spinning process for fiber, you basically twist one strand in one direction, mm-hmm. and then you actually you twist all the small strands, all these skinny strands in one direction, however many you need to ply together, and then you ply them together in the other direction. That's how you get S twist and Z twist. They're called. They're yeah. they're going the two different directions, and you do one all in one direction, the smaller ones, then you twist them all together in the other direction, mm. basically. And that's how you how you get yarn. And I imagine rope is a very similar process, although I talk about how much I love like textiles and yarn and stuff, but I really have done no research on rope. I don't know like <laughs> anything about the composition or how it's made at yeah. all. There's a hole I need to go down that rabbit hole someday and figure it out. <laughs> I mean kind of as a side note we're talking about making pasta we made pasta at your sister's house yeah a couple of weeks ago and we're talking about making it again i'm thinking while the pasta's still wet you'd like weave or knit some of that together and we oh, make yeah. a new kind of pasta <laughs> like these little these little squares little sample squares of, of, of like woven, woven pasta. like make ravioli with little like ro- woven tops well, i don't know about ravioli because the <laughs> filling would come out <laughs> but it looked real pretty it would look real pretty unless unless you made like like a jalapeno ravioli or something uh-huh. like oh my god Got it. We got it. Oh my jalapeno God. popper ravioli. So oh you stuff the ravioli with cream cheese. And jalapeno. Jalapeno with cream cheese. Okay. And then you put that inside the ravioli cage. Okay. 
and, and then, then you deep fry it. And then you deep fry it. <laughs> oh my God. That right. sounds amazing. So this podcast just ended because we legit have to go find jalapeno popper <laughs> we, ravioli cages. Yes, we need to go do that. It's going to take four and a half hours to do all of that before we can eat like four. <laughs> anyway, okay. Wow, tangent. So where were we? Um, rope. <laughs> rope. <laughs> So bast is super flexible, but it is still part of a plant. It's like a, a little bit woody. And then depending on the species, it can be quite rough. The fibers themselves are, are pretty long. So that's nice that they're super long pieces, depending on how big of a, a chunk of tree you're working off of. Right. Mm-hmm. So it kind of reminds me of like the fine the fine silk and corn, mm. you know, between the husk and the corn itself, the like grouping of of corn silk that you can pull out. I mean, has anybody ever woven that? I don't know. It's very thin and breakable, so I don't know how well so it would work. Well, yeah, so are some other fibers, but we string them together. You put them together and they work. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. Try some corn silk. I mean, an individual strand of like sheep's hair breaks pretty easy. Yeah, they're very short pieces. But when you put them the all together. Yeah. 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 Well, the bass is it looks similar to that. Like you're peeling it out like you would from a corn, a, a corn husk, right? And then, so you can leave it in a larger chunk of a whole bunch of those fibers together, or you can separate separate it down into like the individual piece. And the finer you separate it, the fewer strands of each fiber you you have together, the finer the piece of clothing or rope or whatever you're doing is going to be. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the cloth is going to be the finest pieces of that, like separated down to the the fewest number of those fibers held together. So for weaving, you need like long connected lengths of fiber. And that's what this article is really getting at was how did they connect those fibers together? Because this kind of fiber is not really conducive to spinning, like on a spinning wheel, like you would think. That was the assumption for a long time is that they just popped it on a spinning wheel, a drop spindle. And we found evidence of those spindle whorls and stuff like that on different archaeological sites from yeah. like long ago. Like over, there's been a lot of evidence of that. But this article is showing that those that's how those wool fibers were spun because there's often wool in conjunction with linen on a lot of older sites. Right. And those spindles wouldn't necessarily have been used to process the linen because it didn't it just wouldn't really work for it the fibers are much longer and spinning takes shorter sections and intermingles them together into one spun strand but there's no specific joint point it becomes one continuous super long mm. thread until you until you end it basically yeah so what they looked for in these early textiles these early bronze age textiles from britain was they were looking to see what the join points looked like in the fabric so they could see how it was made basically and what they found was that they were spliced rather than spun and and Mm -hmm. like spun together right now that's really interesting because splicing has previously been identified in pre-dynastic egyptian and neolithic swiss textiles so these are totally different places totally different time periods who have figured out the same way to connect these different fibers together into one continuous thread to make their clothing or fabric or whatever they needed to make. When you take, I've seen you knit a few times in yeah. my life. 
A little bit. Like every day. <laughs> I might be knitting right now. You don't know. <laughs> no, right? But when you end when you end a ball of yarn and you're connecting it with another uh-huh. and you uh in some of those you you put them together and then you rub it on your pant leg mm-hmm. to kind of bring them together. What is that called? That's called splicing. Is that splicing? Yeah. Oh. So that's that's a technique called spit splicing. Although most people just use water these days, but like back in the day, I think you just like pop the yarn ends into your mouth and get yeah. them all wet with spit. <laughs> yeah. But it takes the moisture and then heat to make the fibers stick together and that's why you're rolling it on on something on my jeans are perfect for it yeah you just roll it right on your your pants leg to connect it but it's the same idea with these fibers you can see where they were like basically a kind of a j hook on the end on Mm -hmm. each end and then sort of hooked together and you can see the evidence of that in the pieces of cloth themselves that that's how they were hooked together right so this very specific join point is called a splice and it's not made by spinning i'm joining together spun yarn by doing that but these are short sections there's a picture in this article where you can see that that join point is like very quickly happening so they're clearly joining in like long fibers often using this method like as they go i was trying to figure out like why we care about all this what is the what is the difference here i didn't realize i thought they were just doing what you do which is taking something that was already spun they run out of it and they connect it to something else but no they're kind of like making it as they go it's like expedient right like they can just pull these fibers out of the bark Mm -hmm. from the tree nearby and then just like start doing it they can start doing it right there and and join as they go they don't have this intermediate spinning step right but the interesting part the other interesting part is that it seems like it would be faster but it's actually like a slower method to stop and have to join each of these sections as you go because the fiber is only so long it's as long as the tree is you know Mm -hmm. so you can get some pretty long lengths but it's you're still gonna run out fairly quickly you need to keep joining so it's the method itself is slower and it's a simpler method too because obviously it takes no extra technology or equipment to do it. You just join it by hand and keep on going, right? So it seems logical that it would predate spinning and it would be done, it it developed independently around the world in different places at different times. It's very simple. You just bloop, join them together and keep on going. Yeah. And just to touch on spinning like really, really quickly, the spinning technology was developed later in the development of a society and it was usually once they got into their sailing phase if they did because sails require like vast amounts of fabric and you need to be able to make them quickly and they need to be like pretty good quality too yeah. in order to like handle all of the wind and what is needed for from a sail and and probably of a construction type that allows you to repair it while at sea yeah weaving is very very conducive to quick repair you can mm-hmm. do that really easily So, yeah, spinning probably developed once they needed to make huge amounts of cloth and it was faster. It's an extra step, but it's an extra step that speeds up the overall process significantly. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting because that that progression from splicing to spinning, specifically with plant based fibers, wool is a different different thing entirely. But plant based bast fibers, that splicing to spinning progression happened at different places around the world. And that's kind of what this article is, say- is saying. They found it in in-, in Britain. They found it in Egypt and uh, Neolithic areas around the world. So it's kind of cool that they independently developed this and then it sort of progresses the same for everybody. The thing I like about that is when you're thinking about 
And I know archaeologists shouldn't talk about aliens, but I'm talking about aliens. <laughs> oh, when that's you're, good. Jalapeno poppers and aliens all in I one know, episode. Right? <laughs> when you're no, but when you're thinking about life on other worlds, you know, and and how that may have developed and what that life might look like, yeah, the biology the biology of that life might be different because of the environment they grew up in mm-hmm. or, or were developed in. But chances are, it's going to be you know something similar to life on this earth not necessarily humans but something similar but technologies too like when you see that something was independently developed by different societies around the world in basically the same way and even the technological progression of that development started one way and went to another way and Mm -hmm. then another way and pretty much just with no communication between them i mean today's day and age yeah somebody invents something it's immediately copied in china and then sold across the world right? right but you know that's not what we're talking about there's no communication no observation nothing whatsoever no contact between the societies and yet they come up with the same ways of doing something and I'm like well there are beings spinning plant fibers and weaving plant fibers and and splicing plant fibers across the entire universe Mm -hmm. right now and that's super cool yeah no it is it's when you think about that broader innovation that happens by any any species with enough brain power that and enough uh, motivation to to innovate like that, and then of mm-hmm. course you're going to see all that kind of that happen everywhere. I mean, Chattahoyak was what eight nine thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and they were you know they have cloth out of bast, and then also this this group in Britain that's almost four thousand years ago. I mean, there's a four thousand year spread there, and a huge geographical difference too, and yet this basically the same thing happened in the two places, different materials because it was local to their yeah. own area, but the same process. Very cool. Yeah, pretty cool. All right. Well, I think that's it, eh? Yeah, I think so. That's, All right. That's your textile check-in for <laughs> the year. I probably won't subject subject you and the listeners to textile stuff unless a whole slew of articles come out again. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.